Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Our guest today is Dr. Sudip Parikh, CEO of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. The AAAS, as it is known, is the largest multidisciplinary scientific society in the world. It has individual members in more than 91 countries and is dedicated to the mission of advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. In addition to being CEO of this incredible organization, Sudip is also its executive publisher. AAAS publishes Science Magazine and its family of peer-reviewed journals. Before taking the helm at AAAS, Sudip worked for a pair of scientific nonprofits, DIA Global and Battelle Memorial Institute, both of which are dedicated to improving the human condition through the scientific enterprise. But before that, Sudip was science advisor and professional staff for the Senate Committee on Appropriations. He spent eight years on Capitol Hill, some of those years in the majority and some of those years in the minority. While there, he helped advise on appropriations and policy for federal research agencies and oversight of federal programs and served as the committee's liaison to science and technology industries, universities, and institutions. There are a lot of reasons why I wanted to talk with Sudip, but one of them is that over the past year, thanks to COVID, all of us have gotten a new education in science. It's importance to our daily lives, for good and for bad. It's potential to give us hope. It's ability to deliver incredible inventions and more. And today, there's more talk in Washington about the need for more science and scientific investment than there has been in a long time. But the last year has also shown that there can be elevated tension around science and that there are some limitations to political debate involving science. And we talk about that, too. I am so honored to be able to present to you our conversation. Sudip and I spoke on Wednesday, May 19th. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Sudip Parikh, welcome to Staffer. Jim, thank you so much for inviting me. It's it's an honor to be here. It is my pleasure to have you, truly. Um, As you may know, I like to start with my guests uh, at the beginning, asking them about where they grew up. And I I know you grew up in a small town uh, in North Carolina called Hickory, um, which is uh, north of Charlotte. But tell me uh, what life was like there. Tell me about your family and uh, what it was like growing up. Yeah, um, my my family uh, my family are immigrants from India. Uh, I I like to say that I'm the the product of special expert visas and chain migration. Uh, my my uncle was a geologist who uh, got recruited to work for the space program during the 1960s, and he then invited over uh, the rest of uh, the rest of his family, uh, including my father. Uh, and so my father uh, came uh, got came from Mumbai and ended up in Hickory, North Carolina, and loved it, right? Uh, from a city of millions to a, a town of thousands, uh, and absolutely loved it, and, uh, and put down roots there. Uh, he, uh, he and then my mom, who he uh, went back to India and married and brought back, um, uh, ended up uh, living in Hickory for the next, gosh, 40 years, and uh, really spent their, uh, their years working in the textile uh, mills and the furniture factories of uh, Hickory, North Carolina, uh, which is a tough, tough gig uh, if, yeah. you, if you know that time period from the 1970s to the 2000s is basically the, the, slow, um, uh, the, the slow erosion uh, of those two industries. And so I, I watched, that, uh, watched that happen with them. Uh, and uh, I think it left a, a, a pretty indelible mark on me. You know, I, know, I know that feeling. Uh, of uncertainty uh, that comes with uh, with uh, with job losses and with uh, uh, with an industry that is slowly uh, slowly giving way. Uh, my parents eventually um, uh, decided that they needed to strike out on their own as entrepreneurs. So they they bought a small dry cleaner in uh, Hickory, North Carolina, which was my first job. And uh, and so I also uh, I also understand what it's like to have a small business. Uh, uh, my parents ran that for a good ten years and. Uh, and I think really, uh, really showed how hard you have to work to make it as a small business person. Yeah, incredible. Now, your uncle was a scientist uh, or an engineer, um, and uh, your parents worked in the textile mills and then had their own small business. Uh, how did you come to science? Was that part of the just the atmosphere of your family life, or did you discover that at school? Yeah, you know, um, my parents uh, were always uh you know, school was the most important thing uh and so they've 
Uh, they've instilled that in me and my sister uh, from the beginning. Uh, and it was always a given that we were going to go to college, uh, even though you know, they hadn't gone to college here in the United States. Uh, and most of the people that we knew uh, didn't go to college in, uh, in Hickory. Uh, they didn't put any pressure on what I should be. You know, I mean, there's this, uh, there, there's certainly in the Indian community, in the diaspora, a, a need to be a doctor or an engineer uh, uh, or a push for that. My parents uh, didn't do that. They, they really uh, suggested that we pursue what we like. And then uh, science is something that I eventually came to. I started off in journalism. I wanted to be the next Charles Kuralt, uh, but I, uh, I wasn't, uh, uh, that, didn't, that didn't come to pass. I ended up uh, choosing uh, the sciences and uh, uh, pursuing a degree in, uh, in biochemistry eventually, and uh, a PhD in biochemistry. Uh, but it's something that I, I've loved, but, uh, but that, that love of journalism didn't go away either. I, I still like my journalist friends. Yeah, you know, um, as a <clears throat> proud communication major, um, the the uh, you know the direction of of students changing majors very rarely went from a communication based major <laughs> to a science based major. We welcomed with open arms many of our engineering classmates uh, into our major, but your pathway was a unique one. Yeah, there weren't there weren't too many of us, but uh, but you know what I've come to learn is that uh, that you know. The reasons that I liked journalism uh, were that there was this ability to influence the future. And I, I see that in the sciences as well. Uh, and the communication part is important for everybody, uh, as, as I think we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about later in this as well. Yeah. So uh, you, you uh, went on to get your PhD in macromolecular structure and chemistry uh, from the Scripps Research Institute in California. But when you finished with that, you did not stay on the scientific path. Uh, instead, you came to Washington. So how did that happen? Yeah, uh, as with many good things, because of my wife, um, uh, you know, I uh, had made a had made a promise to my uh, wife as we were uh, as we were leaving college. Uh, I asked her to come to San Diego uh, to go to graduate school with me. And she said, uh, under two conditions, you know, one is that there's a future here, we're going to get married. Uh, and the second is that she gets to choose the next city. Uh, and, uh, and so then, you know, four and a half years later, when it was time to, to leave San Diego, uh, I was ready to pursue that uh, scientific, uh, you know, that scientific focus in Boston, which is where, you know, many, many scientists go for their postdoctoral training. Uh, and she reminded me that she gets to choose the next city. And, uh, <laughs> and she is, uh, she's a lawyer and uh, and wanted to uh, you know Washington is a uh, is a holy place for uh, for those uh, for those who are lawyers so we came here uh, I chose at that point to say you know um, Washington what do people do in Washington uh, yeah there's some science here but uh, but uh, policy is a, is a big deal and so I I decided that maybe this was a good time for me to at least check that out and see what it was like um, and so I I, I uh, I applied for something called the Presidential Management Internship, uh, PMI. I think they've changed the name of it now to Presidential Management Fellowship. Uh, but it was a, a great gig. You know, it gave me a, a small salary, and they sort of turned me loose on turned me loose on the campus of the National Institutes of Health, and said, uh, "Go find something useful to do," and uh, and I did. Is that how it works? That is, you have to sort of craft your experience there. Yeah, so uh, they had different kinds of PMIs at that time. Uh, there was something called the at-large PMI, which was the entire campus is open to you. Go and go and talk to someone about uh, how you might be able to help them. Oh wow! Yeah. And what did yeah. you work on? Gosh, lots of things. I started off at the Neurology Institute, working for uh, Dr. Jerry Fishbach, who was the director then, and that's when I learned about stem cells. Um, uh, and then. I spent some time, I wanted to know what happened when a grant came into the federal government. So I worked at a place called the Center for Scientific Review for a, a, a six week period or three, uh, three months, I think. And then, uh, and then I got a chance to uh, follow around uh, the acting director at the time, uh, Ruth Kirstein. Uh, so it was uh, a, a real, just an amazing way to be introduced to, to, to science at the federal level. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, it, uh, I imagine that served you well when you went on to work on the Hill. So how did you get from there to the Senate Appropriations Committee, which is, you know, a pretty elevated place to be on Capitol Hill? Dumb luck. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, it was wonderful. Uh, a friend of mine, 
who was a who was all, who had also been a presidential management intern uh, and had then been serving as a detailee uh, on the Senate Appropriations Committee, um, uh, was leaving there. Uh, he'd gotten an opportunity to go to MIT uh, for a for an MBA, uh, and so he was leaving the Hill to go do that. Uh, and the Appropriations Committee was looking for um, another another detailee from the NIH. Uh, I was not qualified at all. I was incredibly junior um, uh, and uh, not deserving. But uh, because uh, because I was a PMI and had flexibility, uh, I went and talked to the staff director on the Labor H Appropriations Subcommittee, uh, Betty Lou Taylor, and uh, uh, and she invited me to do a detail for three months um, on the Hill. Uh, and I honestly didn't know much about it. I didn't know what appropriations meant. Um, yeah. Uh, so it was, uh, it was really eye-opening to spend that, that three months there. You know, uh, even for people who work on Capitol Hill, the appropriations committees can be a bit of a black box, right? Uh, particularly the way um, our appropriations functions have come to um, be enacted in recent years, right? Um, it used to be there were subcommittee hearings and then markups and then full committee uh, hearings and markups and and bills were passed individually on the House and Senate floors, then conferenced, um, then, you know, enacted into law. Uh, nowadays, um, you know, not many bills make it through that process. And instead, we pass big omnibus bills at the end of, of the year. Um, and all the decisions are made at the leadership and committee level. So, you know, very few staff have insight into, you know, what the clerks, i.e. the individuals who are responsible for each bill and their their supporting staff are doing on these bills. So can you give some insight into what it's like on the inside of those rooms? It's remarkable. I have to say, you know, I um, uh, when I got there, I really didn't know what the Appropriations Committee did. I didn't know what uh, what the process was. And the first thing I learned is that these are staff who've been there for a long time. Appropriations is not, you know, most of the time you think of the Hill, you think of, of relatively young people um, uh, doing really important things. The Appropriations Committee has a lot of longtime staff members uh, because it is a, it's a process and it's, uh, it is, uh, it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, and it requires um, knowledge about both the appropriations process and about the program's that they that they cover. Um, so the first thing that uh, that happens is that appropriation staff actually try to get to know programs. Uh, they visit, they see, they go out into the into the world uh, to uh, to learn about what the federal government is doing. Uh, then there are uh, there are hearings with uh, individual agencies, uh, with the National Institutes of Health for me and the the CDC and the FDA. Um, uh, and then there are uh, there are conversations. Uh, at the detailed level with the budget officers of those agencies, really digging into these budget requests that come up from the, from the executive branch. And then there's meetings with every stakeholder possible uh, who is concerned about those bills. Uh, and that ranges from, uh, from patient advocates for NIH to scientists to, uh, to people who don't like what the, what the agencies are doing. Uh, and then it's a matter of uh, starting these bills. What do they start with? They start with an Excel spreadsheet. Right, uh, these bills, at their heart, are an Excel spreadsheet of a budget, uh, millions of dollars, uh, thousands of line items uh, that are for every every program in the federal government, uh, you know, trillion dollars plus of discretionary spending, and making your way through that Excel spreadsheet and saying, okay, this number adds up to, you know, uh, for the labor H bill at that time, it's about 150 billion dollars. All these numbers have to add up to 150 billion dollars. You don't have to get more than that, so it has to fit in there. And so there, um, uh, so then as the majority staff, uh, and in appropriations, it's very bipartisan. You started pretty early conferring with one another um, and, uh, and trying to, to write those numbers in a way that made sense for the Senate. And in parallel, the House is doing that. Uh, and then eventually, um, you start writing bill language around that Excel spreadsheet. Uh, and then you write report language for that, uh, that that explains it, and then also includes some of the work from stakeholders. Uh, but the real essence of the job is knowing those programs, negotiating with your counterparts on the either majority or the minority side, uh, and then uh, after you've passed bills in the Senate and the House, to confer uh, with uh, with the other body uh, and come up to something that we can all agree to. And for the ninety nine percent of those line items, in and the programmatic work. 
um, there's agreement. You know, these are people who know these programs intimately. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of that is happening. It, it looks very opaque, I know, from the outside. Um, but uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of understanding of these programs and, and doing good policy work. And then there's the, the one to five percent that are poli very political, very political. The labor H bill had abortion language and had language around uh, cloning uh, and labor issues, uh, and those are the ones that that that, that get put in front of um, uh, put in front of members. Uh, you have a conference of the big four, and you you work it out, and it's it's really a remarkable process. That I think I left it being less cynical than I went into it. Uh, I was I'm, I was just amazed by the level of competence of the staff and, and even the members who'd been there for a long time on appropriations. Uh, the fact that now we're doing a lot of these things in omnibuses is, is some cause for concern. Uh, a lot of that work is still going on in the background and, and being done well, but it means that there are less people in the room uh, making decisions at the end of the day. And I think that's, that's bad for the process. Yeah. Well, uh, to your point about the the depth of expertise on a staff level that resides within the appropriations committees on both sides uh, is something that I, I did not have the window into it that you had, but I certainly have shared that observation because that, you know, to your point, the 95% of that spreadsheet, I mean, those are folks who really know those <laughs> programs um, gained over time, right, that expertise. Um but most of the rest of Congress is fighting over that 5%. And we rely on the staff to really be monitoring and directing resources in a way that's thoughtful um, year over year. And so to that point, we're actually, um, you were there during a time when I recall there being a number of things that were controversial, um, but also really important. Um, you you know, you mentioned cloning, I, uh, AKA stem cell research, climate change was really becoming a major um, uh, topic of discussion then. But one of the things that was also monumental was the doubling of the NIH budget. And that had been something that advocates wanted for many, many years. And you were there to see that uh, executed over a period of several years. Um, can you tell us what that doubling of the NIH budget means to us today since it you know it's now 20 years uh that it happened yeah uh in terms of what it means for us today you know i often hear from people who are outside of the process gosh it'd be so much better if we could have you know six percent or five percent increase every year in perpetuity uh you know stable understood and i keep telling people that um that these moments they don't you don't get to choose them in terms of when appropriations grow uh, a whole bunch of factors have to come together increases in discretionary spending, et cetera. And so, yes, um, after that doubling happened, things went into stasis for a little while. But the, the overall outcome uh, in the 20 years after that doubling is that there were 12 billion more per year built into the baseline that was happening for biomedical research. Multiply that by, by 10 years, it's $120 billion of biomedical research that was uh, performed in just the baseline level because of those increases uh, during the doubling. And that is extraordinary. You know, that is, um, that's the reason we have the mRNA vaccines that we do today. Uh, those are a product of the doubling. The research that was done to ensure that mRNA um, uh, could be used uh, in a way that didn't set off your immune system uh, was done at, at Penn by uh, two wonderful scientists, Catalin uh, uh, Carrico and uh, Drew Weissman. And that was funded during the doubling. Uh, some of the work on the vesicles that, that are used to actually deploy that mRNA vaccine again, funded by the NIH. Uh, the Vaccine Research Center that was built on the campus that we always talk about, that was built during the NIH doubling. So thank goodness we did it. Well, thank goodness we did it. And that is a, a, an important part of the lesson of our response to COVID that is underappreciated today. Like we, we, we rightfully give a lot of credit to uh, the companies and the scientists in them, et cetera, that you know, developed the vaccine seemingly in a year. And the the, bureauc the the bureaucracy that helped get it approved and, and disseminated, et cetera. But it really wasn't. It didn't happen in a year. Didn't happen point. in a year. It didn't happen in a year. But you know, the, we should we should be celebrating um, uh, what did work in this. So that that prior investment, but then de-risking. You know, um, uh, Operation War Speed has uh, had an effect, right? We de-risked for companies that yes, we're gonna we're gonna buy these uh, vaccines from you uh, when they're ready. 
uh, and that that takes a lot of pressure off. Um, and uh, and then you know when you uh, Tony Fauci did an editorial for Science Magazine where he sort of listed the individuals uh, who had contributed to the mRNA vaccine, uh, and they are they are um, uh, they are they are men and women. They are white Americans and Black Americans. They are immigrants. They are working in industry, working in government, working in academia. They are international collaborators. I mean, it is, uh, we, we de-risked it. That's policy. That's Congress at work, together with the White House. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's science coming together. That part worked incredibly well. Where we fell down is places we didn't invest, right? We slowly let public health wither on the vine. Uh, and that showed in that a lot of our public health professionals at the state and local level didn't have the relationships uh, with their political leaders that they would have had if they'd been well resourced, uh, and uh, and that's where we did fall down a bit. And so, you know, I, I think it's a real lesson uh, in what we do well in terms of policy making and, and what we haven't done well and what we should learn from. Well, and we may be on the cusp of another major investment in science. Uh, so, Majority Leader Schumer has uh, advanced a bill that until this morning was called the Endless Frontiers Act. I understand that he's just renamed it the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. Um, It would do a lot of things, um, but among them is create a new directorate for technology and innovation at the National Science Foundation. It would authorize $100 billion over five years for that new directorate, and it would provide some flexibilities uh, to that directorate um, in terms of program management and personnel, et cetera. Having been uh, right at the center of the last major investment of of similar scale, what advice do you have for the policymakers on the Hill as they try to navigate this, which they're doing in a bipartisan way, to your point earlier, but there are still some challenges um, to getting the policy right? Yeah. Uh, It's it's an exciting time, Jim. Um, In my 22 years here in Washington, this is the when I talk about those factors have to all be right uh, for that moment to come, that, that, that is it. They're all lining up. Uh, we, we see the, there's both scientific and technical opportunity. There is an economic imperative, uh, uh to this investment. Uh, there is a competitive impair, uh, uh, imperative to this investment. Uh, and there is an ethical and moral, uh, uh, uh imperative to this investment. And we're seeing it on all those fronts. Um, the advice I'd give to the policymakers is that uh, we we have this opportunity uh, that only comes around uh, once in once in a generation. And if you miss it, here's the thing: you know, Germany and the UK used to spend a lot more than us on research and development uh, prior to prior to 1945. Uh, and eventually, what ends up happening is that yes, we we do pass them. And if you're in Germany, you might have said, well, we'll just catch up. But, you know, the, the fruits of that investment form this virtuous cycle where your economy grows and so you can invest more. And eventually you can't catch up anymore. Uh, and that is the, you know, we're, make no mistake, we are in two, two really important uh, global competitions. One is we're in a competition with time. Uh, time is on these, there's some existential threats out there, whether it's climate change, whether it is other pandemics. Uh, we need to make sure that we have the tools that are going to be necessary uh, from the scientific perspective, to at least enable policymakers to make the right decisions. The second is we're in a global competition with China and India and our friends, Europe uh, and, and elsewhere, uh, who've seen the model of investing in science and technology to grow their economies and, uh, and, and, and having that build their economies. They've seen it. They're doing it. Uh, and so we have to make sure that we're saying, okay, you know what? We are in, we're in, the, we're in the catbird seat. We we are still we are still uh, at the at the bleeding edge of science. Let's make sure we're in, in, ensuring that that happens. This directorate that we're talking about at the at National Science Foundation is a is a terrific idea. It's not at, it shouldn't be at the um, uh, instead of basic research. It's in addition to uh, uh, basic research, and that's uh, that's very important. Uh, one thing that I'd be very careful about is that we we're no no country is an island. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned my story of being an immigrant uh, to this country, uh, being the son of immigrants to this country. Uh, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who can tell that same story in the sciences and engineering. Uh, and we are fortunate. We're the crossroads of science. And I know that there's a, there's a real need to protect our intellectual property. There's a real need to protect us against uh, theft of our, uh, of our know-how. And I think we need to protect against that. Uh, but we need to be careful and make sure that we continue to be a crossroads uh, for science. 
uh, we're going to need, if we're going to solve these problems, we're going to need people uh, who are the descendants of pilgrims, the descendants of our founding mothers and fathers, of enslaved Americans, uh, and of immigrants from everywhere. We're going to need all of them because this is a global battle uh, and we got to win it. And so if, as long as our policymakers can keep that in perspective, um, I think we're gonna we're gonna do really well, and I'm I'm optimistic that they're going to. Uh, you know, this is the most bipartisanship that you can find on the Hill is around these issues, right. uh, and uh, it's it's exciting to me. You know, when I see a report from the House Republicans saying that we should be doubling basic research, when I see uh, uh, Majority Leader Schumer and Todd Young uh, coming together on on this bill and others coming together on this bill. When I see the House Science Committee and uh, Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson and uh, Congressman Frank Lucas coming together, uh, that is that is wonderful. That is uh, exciting and wonderful. And I'm not, I'm 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 dedicated to not letting this moment pass. Um, I am so happy to hear your optimism. I share it. Um, but you know. There are some who look at the state of our policymaking in America and get frustrated, right, and say the science is so clear, it's been clear on issue X, Y, and Z, and they don't get it. They intentionally ignore it or, or you know, misrepresent it, and what's the use? Now, AAAS is the world's leading scientific organization um, and among the many, many things it does, it places fellows, um, people with backgrounds in science and technology who want to contribute to public policy, inform it, shape it, et cetera. So what advice do you have for incoming fellows or people thinking about being fellows if they are skeptical of the impact they could have? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. You know, I, I mentioned that when I, when I came to the Hill, you know, it was by dumb luck. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you, if you ask me the question, you know, when did you get excited about politics? It was about three months after I got to Capitol Hill, right? It was, <laughs> it was, it wasn't until after I got there and recognized what's possible, what's possible by being involved in policy, uh, discussions. And that led to nine years, uh, of, of being on the Hill. Um, and what I would say to, uh, to scientists who think about, uh, this idea of serving, uh, of, of serving as a staff member in Congress you know, a year spent uh, in those uh, in those halls uh, is incredibly valuable, uh, and it's incredibly valuable to you, and it's also incredibly valuable to the country. Um, you know, we need uh, people with scientific backgrounds in those offices, and they, the people who are in those offices, need to understand the pressures that are on members of Congress. You know, when I when I worked in um, uh, uh, on approves, you know, you'd get called into uh, a meeting with a with a member of the committee, uh, and you know the the chair uh, that I worked for was uh, were Ted Stevens and Thad Cochran, uh, and then on the subcommittee level, uh, Arlen Specter. Um, when you get called into a meeting, you know they've just walked out of a meeting on agriculture subsidies, or they've just walked out of a meeting on some local issue, and they've got so many pressures. No matter how smart they are, and they a lot of them are incredibly smart and talented individuals, um, they need uh, they need uh, great staff work. And as a scientist on the Hill, you'll see what the pressures are on the staffers. Uh, and you become part of that, right? And so you're not just advising on science. Uh, you're going to be a part of the team. Uh, and that means doing the mundane, uh, which is, you know, helping to, helping to write a constituent letter or doing the, the surreal, uh, which is helping, uh, you know, helping your principal uh, develop policy. Uh, those things are, and you're watching that from the inside is, uh, is something you'll, you'll never forget and something that will come in handy for the next 50 years. Well, and so let's let's return to this question uh, of communications, which you mentioned at the beginning. I mean, science advisors are there for their expertise on technical, complex matters that are, you know, in addition to, you know, taking a while to explain to somebody who doesn't have their expertise, are never black and white, right? It's always percentages of gray. And yet... Congress and politics is a binary. Is it yes or is it no? <laughs> right? Are we, is it in the bill or is it not in the bill? Um, so, you know, how as a, as a science advisor, um, do you communicate to other staff who are not science-based and to the policymakers themselves in a way that gets them to understand and then take the action that the science would dictate? Yeah, it's 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 really hard. It, 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 for a scientist, it requires rewiring your communication skills. 
you know, we're taught to work in both accuracy and precision, right? When you read a scientific paper, there's a lot of jargon in it. And the reason for the jargon is precision, right? We need to be very precise about what we're talking about. Um, in the, what I've learned in policymaking is that the accuracy is much more important than the precision. Um, because the precision um, is, is an enemy to understanding sometimes. Um, and so when there is not enough time for precision, make sure you're accurate. Be able to come up with metaphors that uh, that make uh, that make the point, uh, and then help people understand the consequences. The consequences, and then if they want to learn more about the actual science, give them that opportunity. But you've got you got to get to the point, right? You got a half a page to to make your case or to make your argument. You know, a story that I often tell uh, is is one of my first few weeks in the Senate. Senator Brownback of Kansas had offered an amendment to um, uh, uh, to uh, ban the creation of animal-human hybrids. Uh, he'd done this on an appropriations bill, which is, sounds like a great idea, right? We don't want centaurs running around. Um, but it, it, the way it was written, because legislative well, language is a blunt tool. Might. Well, yeah, centaur might be a great <laughs> idea. Um, uh, but yeah, legislative language is a blunt tool. And the way it was written, it would have banned recombinant DNA, which is like a you know a, a incredible basic tool in uh, in the life sciences. And so uh, I, I went to the, to the cloakroom uh, and was um, explaining to a senator uh, who wanted to make a speech against this amendment, uh, one of the managers of the bill. Uh, uh, they wanted to uh, argue against this amendment. And the senator said, well, give me an experiment that can't be done if this amendment passes. So I get, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I'm starting to talk about green fluorescent protein and molecular biology. And the senator looks at me and says, you know, that's great, Sudip, but give me something I can explain. Uh, and I realized I was, I was just, I was given way too much. And so what I said was, look, there's this, there's this pretty obsolete experiment, but it's a fertility test where you take a hamster egg and you put it with a human sperm, uh, and you're checking for motility and seeing if there's any joining, but nothing happens. Um, and so I thought I'd hit on the perfect metaphor, um, uh, or a perfect experiment. And the, the sender leans back and he looks at me and he says, what's a hamster? <laughs> and and you know I'm you know, this is <laughs> and, and yeah I, I think about that comment now and I thought he was joking and he wasn't joking but I also think you know he just again he just come off a different issue a different uh, thing because he's fighting off 150 amendments on this bill and so I say well you know a hamster is a, a mammal and it's bigger than a mouse and smaller than a, and I said an aardvark which I don't know what an aardvark is so um, I, I was really uh, going to get into trouble. <laughs> But eventually he, uh, you know, he, he gets it. He walks out onto the Senate floor, says a bunch of things that aren't quite correct, but he, he's, he argues in the right direction. He's the manager of the bill. He brings a whole bunch of members with him uh, and the amendment fails. And then we go back into the congressional record of staff and fix um, uh, some, of the, some of the things that aren't quite right. Uh, and uh, you know, that it, it's just important to be able to make that case up front, make sure that you've got folks in the right place and then give them the tools they need to, to make their argument. Oh, that is a fantastic story. Um, you know, you now are the principal of an organization uh, with uh, worldwide impact, and you are the recipient of a lot of staff work. And I know uh, some of the people who are staffing you at AAAS are former congressional staff and staff in, in agencies around um, around Washington, around the country. So, you know, what in your mind makes a good staffer, congressional staffer, but also the, you know, the hallmarks that you're looking for in, in, the, in the work that's done uh, for AAAS? Yeah, the, the number one thing is trust, right? I've got to be able to trust that, uh, that a person who's staffing me can, uh, can say when they don't know something. Uh, they've got to have that, uh, that, the humility to be able to say, I don't know, and I'll find out. Um, uh, but uh, building that level of trust with me so that I know that if I ask you something in the last second and you tell me an answer, I'm going to use it and I'm going to I'm going to feel very confident uh, in using it uh, is, is the most important thing. You know, all the all the other pieces about being willing to uh, uh, to work hard and uh, and uh, and be be smart and uh, and uh, and brief and all those things are important. But without trust, all that stuff is irrelevant. Uh, so. Uh, and you know it, it's hard on the hill, right? You know, I, I um, when I got there, uh, I didn't, I didn't understand exactly what I was supposed to do as a staffer, right? I, again, I'm a scientist. I've, I'm sort of thrown into this, and I realized that, gosh, it's actually my initiative, right? I need to be able to mm -hmm. think of the moment where I say, gosh, I need to write a memo right now because this is something important that needs to be thought about. 
Uh, and luckily, I had uh, you know wonderful mentors like Betty Lou Taylor and Ellen Murray uh, who were uh, who explained uh, when and how uh, to communicate with our uh, with our uh, with our chairs. But it's not something that you're taught in school, uh, and so the ability to absorb information around you and see the culture uh, of the of the hill is so incredibly important. Such a good point. The uh, I think my, at least my experience on the hill was. Of course, there is a job that you're hired for, and the way we're going to describe that job is basically making a list of the things that the person who had it before you did, <laughs> right? And then, and then we're going to figure out what you know your real capacity is, and based on you know ability and appetite, and as you put it, work ethic, etc. Um, you can do a lot of different things, um, and every good policy and communication staffer does take, you know, the guidance from the leadership, including the member, and develops an initiative, an idea, a bill, a, you know, something and says, this meets all the criteria and I'm going to push it. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's so incredibly important. Uh, if you want to serve in these capacities, it's a privilege, right? You know, I can remember, uh, you know, for the appropriations committee, we conferenced a lot, usually over the holidays. Uh, which meant that you were walking through the Capitol building at 3 a.m., uh, you know, walking under the dome at 3 a.m. It's a privilege. What a privilege to be able to do that um, uh, and to, you know, uh, sing under the Capitol dome uh, it, all alone uh, is just a remarkable experience. Uh, take that privilege and you have this opportunity. Uh, you know, the proudest moments that I have uh, of that time uh, are working on things like embryonic stem cells for Senator Specter or, or uh, incorporating a national cord blood uh, a program into an appropriations bill before it was even authorized because it was important to do. Um, uh, and, you know, it's, it's saved lives. Uh, and that is, um, uh, that's something that you are, that you have the privilege of having the opportunity, but that's all it gives you is an opportunity. Uh, yeah. You have to, you have to move forward with it. And then you have to have a, a boss who's uh, willing to, uh, to, uh, to just take, take your idea and run with it or just give you their backing. Cause you know, as a, uh, as a senator, really, what you just need is their imprimatur that to, that you're working on their behalf, uh, and and then you're you can make things happen. Yeah, you know, uh, you mentioned Senator Specter, and he was such an interesting senator uh, from Pennsylvania. Uh, he longtime Republican, later became a Democrat. Um, he also suffered from cancer, if I remember correctly, and and had a a real passion for science research. Um, as a result, I think as a result of that, but it certainly may have pre-existed. Um, so tell me about working uh, with him. What, you know, what was he like? And their specter was extraordinary. Um, yeah, I you know I met him in the year two thousand. So by then he'd already I think he was already a three or four term senator. Um, uh, he, I didn't know. So tell you that how little I knew about politics. I didn't know if he was a Republican or a Democrat. I didn't know who the majority was. Yeah, I'd been in San Diego for five years. I had. Kind of heard that there was an impeachment thing that happened, uh, you know, a few years <laughs> before that. Didn't know anything, uh, and so getting there, you know, I asked. I remember, you know, asking, "Do I need to frame these in my memos in any particular direction?" No, he wanted the facts, right? He wanted, he wanted facts. He was, um, uh, he was driven by that. Uh, he, um, uh, he could be a really tough boss, you know. Uh, he wasn't afraid to yell at you. Um, uh, he wasn't afraid to. Um, uh, to call you out. Uh, I was fortunate that I wasn't a lawyer. Uh, you know, he was a lawyer and lawyers had it tough because if they gave him something, he would, uh, he would argue back and forth with them as the scientist. You know, if I talked about stem cells, he trusted, uh, that what I was saying was, was correct. Um, one of the most surreal, you know, I had two surreal moments with, uh, Senator Spector, you know, he, he did get sick. He, um, uh, he had, uh, a Hodgkin's, uh, disease. Um, uh, and he, I remember, uh, as he announced it to staff, and then as we sat in a conference room and the press release went out over the wires, um, and watching it sort of um, cascade through the press environment, through the media environment, was surreal. You know, within a matter of five minutes, it was at the, on the crawler of every uh, every cable news channel. Uh, it was uh, it was extraordinary. Uh, and then watching him, even uh, going through chemotherapy and uh, having lost all his hair. Uh, run the the Supreme Court nomination hearings for um, uh, for I believe it was Alito uh, at that time. Uh, uh, just just amazing. You know, he did it 
Uh, and I know he was fighting incredible fatigue, uh, incredible uh, challenges, never let it show. Uh, he was just a, a tough, tough human being. Uh, and then, you know, my last week in the Senate turned out to be his last week as a Republican. Uh, so uh, that was a remarkable coincidence. Uh, I, I'm, again, lucky. Uh, uh, he, um, he showed up to my going away party and there were cameras following him. You know, the going away party was at the Monocle uh, uh, sure. in the Senate. And, uh, and he, he showed up and, yeah, there were cameras in tow because he was still talking about uh, switching parties. So a remarkable uh, senator. You know, I often wonder what he would have thought about this last four years. And he would have been holding hearings on everything. You know, that's just what he did. Uh, he used the power of the Congress to investigate. And uh, we had over 20 hearings on stem cells. He had hearings on Ruby Ridge and hearings on uh, judiciary matters. He was just a, a prolific um, hearing uh, uh, champion and was able to move policy because of it. Yeah. Uh, and so, yes, I, was I... Uh, you know, I, I I can tell you to this day, I'm afraid of the man, uh, and, and he's, he's been he's been gone now for gosh ten years, I guess. Um, but uh, but incredible respect for him, incredible respect. And I was fortunate, you know. Again, I'd never heard of these people. I didn't know who Arlen Specter was. I didn't know who Ted Stevens was. I didn't know who Robert Byrd was. Right? Uh, Robert yeah. Byrd was the was the ranking sure, member in, on yeah. approves at that time. I didn't know these people, and I got to meet them. Uh, and and I've learned more and more about them. And, uh, you know, they all have their flaws and it's easy to, uh, it's easy to romanticize what the Senate was like back then. Uh, but, you know, Ted Stevens and Daniel Inouye were friends uh, and they were uh, like brothers. And it showed in the work of their staffs together. Uh, appropriations, it really was, you know, people often say they were Democrats, Republicans and appropriators. Uh, that was true at that time. But we passed bills unanimously out of committee, uh, which I guess doesn't happen today. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I have a, a series of recurring questions that I, I like to ask, uh, before I get to them, however, I do have a question that is, I think somewhat unique to appropriations staff, and that is something called the CODEL, which for the uninitiated, uh, stands for congressional delegation. Uh, can you describe a CODEL, uh, you know, what a CODEL is, how they're used and can you uh, describe the best one you ever went on? Oh my gosh, so many. Um, and you know, people will say that they are a waste of money, and I disagree with that vehemently. Um, so describe what uh, they are. Yeah, for yeah what they are is uh, so a, a congressional delegation, uh, usually a member of Congress. Although with appropriation staff, we did them on our own, um, and they would uh, three or four members uh, would uh, take a trip to China or take a trip to Germany uh, and visit uh, federal programs there. Uh, visit uh, politicians from those host countries, uh, get to know uh, the world. And it was a learning experience for a lot of members, right? A lot of members have built businesses, they've been lawyers, uh, but they haven't maybe traveled to these places uh, and seen the work of a, of a, uh, of even, you know, flying to Alaska and seeing uh, the North Slope, flying to Alaska and seeing Anwar, uh, uh, traveling to Hawaii and seeing uh, what's known as the Hansen's disease colony, leprosy. Um, you know, those are uh, extraordinary things that the federal government does, uh, uh, seeing our polar stations down in Antarctica. Uh, so uh, really valuable learning uh, things. It, as appropriation staff, we had the ability to do that. And almost every, um, almost every recess, we tried to go somewhere to see something. Uh, and I, I, I am privileged to have been able to, to, to be all over the world. Uh, probably the most exciting thing I ever did uh, was uh, go to Afghanistan and Pakistan and Saudi Arabia on uh, uh, on one trip, uh, looking at um, the effort to eradicate polio. Uh, mm -hmm. For those of you who don't know, uh, polio is almost eradicated from the world. Uh, we have eradicated smallpox, right? It's this is uh, public health is an amazing thing. When it works, it silently saves millions. Smallpox is gone, killed millions of people over the last uh, centuries. Uh, polio is headed there. Uh, there. It's endemic in like six countries, uh, including Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, and India. Uh, and so we, uh, we visited these countries because the United States, uh, through uh, our partners around the world, uh, funds polio vaccine to eradicate this disease. And you may ask, why is it important for us to eradicate polio in Afghanistan? Because any place where it lingers means that there's a reservoir that it can come back to us. Uh, and we don't want that. And it's cheap. It's cheap to do so. So we, you know, flying into Kabul in 2004, uh, 
was a remarkable sight. You meet, uh, you know, you're flying in a C-130 and there are 18-year-old Marines uh, who are guarding that, uh, uh, that base. And you just think of how, uh, how incredible their public service is um, and just the incredible work that is, that is possible by the United States government, but on our behalf as, uh, as, uh, as citizens of this country. Uh, and you see, you see the power for good uh, that we have. Um, we still haven't, it, that was 2004, uh, we still haven't eradicated polio. It's still endemic in, uh, in three countries, uh, but we're gonna get there. Uh, I'm, I'm confident we're gonna get there because people on both sides of the aisle support it. You never hear about it yeah. because it gets support. Yeah, right. Yeah, good, a great example. Um, okay, uh, one of my favorite questions is called In the Vault. Can you tell me about a time when as a staffer you screwed up and what you learned from it? Yeah. Um, so I staffed a lot of hearings uh, as a staffer uh, on, on approach, you know, a lot of budget hearings, uh, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of stem cell hearings, coal mining hearings, uh, just a remarkable uh, breadth of things. Uh, the time I screwed up is that Senator Specter was going to have a field hearing in California. Uh, and so uh, this was the one time when Betty Lou Taylor, our, our clerk, was not able to make it. And so I was going to be the lead staffer on this thing. And uh, it was during a snowstorm here in, in D.C. that uh, just dumped, I can't remember, two, two feet of snow or something. And I hadn't moved my flight up. And so I made my way to Dulles in this incredible snowstorm. I got there and there were no flights leaving Dulles. I missed the hearing. Uh, I called in on a cell phone. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the, the lesson there is, you know, watch the weather. And if it's going to be bad, go early. Go early. Uh, he made it. I didn't. Uh, and that's not a good thing. <laughs> so, no. And, and, yeah. and, you know, it, it's like, if you were watching a hearing on C-SPAN, it, it seems like the staff are just sitting behind the members, not doing anything. And that's not the case at all. There's so much active management happening every minute, uh, of a hearing. Um, so for, for a member to be out there without their key staff member is actually a big, a big gap in the system. It was, it was. So that was definitely, uh, that was definitely my biggest, uh, biggest mistake was not going out early. <laughs> Um, okay. If I were to raise enough money to build, uh, a hall of fame on the national mall dedicated to staffers, who would you nominate and why? Yeah. Uh, so I would nominate the clerks of the appropriations committee that I knew back then. Those, the institutional knowledge, uh, in those people. Uh, and so here I'm talking about bipartisan on the Senate side, uh, uh, Steve Cortese, who was the staff director for Senator Stevens, Keith Kennedy, uh, Betty Lou Taylor, who is the staff director for uh, Labor Age Probes uh, on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, Chuck Kiefer, uh, who was the longtime uh, staff director for the, the Democrats. Um, uh, Ellen Murray uh, on Labor Age. These people, the government, nobody knows their names outside of Washington. In Washington, lots of people know their names, but outside of Washington, nobody knows their names. They are the reason. You know, sometimes you ask, how do we get this far? How do we get to the point where we're uh, putting rovers on Mars and we're, we've got public policy to ensure social security lasts for another 20 years. How does that happen? It's because of people like them who've been working on the Hill for 30 years uh, or more and have done the work of good government that we all benefit from. Uh, and look, we don't always get it right, uh, but, but because of Betty Lou and, and Keith Kennedy and Ellen Murray, uh, the world's a better place. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, privileged to know them. Um, last question for you. It, it's not one of my recurring segments. You, um, you know, are now CEO of the AAAS and executive publisher of the science suite of, of peer reviewed journals. Um, it, it, AAAS has a, has a massive mandate. Um, it goes beyond just policymaking. It, you know, its mission is to utilize soon as, uh, science to benefit all of humanity. I mean, it is... It's massive. Um, you know, as you look back on your sort of turning points in your life that, that led you to here, um, what would you say to, you know, young people age 25, you know, considering what's possible in their life and what experiences that they should collect to go have the biggest impact? What, you know, what sort of mentorship advice do you have for them? Yeah, um... Follow all the things you're interested in. I often get asked by people, you know, what's something trending that I should be doing right now? What's, what's important in scientifically trending or politically trending? And I say, don't do that. 
don't do that. If you if that's what you love, do it. But you know, the people who are out winning Nobel prizes and the people who are going to be important to the next policy debate are somewhere in a backwater right now. Right, 20 years ago, nobody cared about mRNA uh, work that was uh, going to try and avoid uh, the immunological response in the, in the human body. Um, and it turns out it's seminal work, right? Same thing in policy, right? Um, uh, nobody knew that uh, you know, public health policy wasn't gonna, thought about in 2019 is going to be at the forefront. So do the things that you actually are interested in and want to make a difference in. And that moment will come. The moment comes. You don't get to choose, as I always say, you don't get to choose the moments. The moments are going to choose themselves. Uh, you need to be ready uh, for that moment. Um, you know, as I look at the turning points uh, in my life, I've been fortunate to, you know, uh, be a scientist, be a, a Hill staffer, uh, now uh, run uh, run AAAS. The collection of experiences um, was more based on what I'm interested in and what I care about than any path. I couldn't have drawn this path uh, for anybody, uh, and everyone should uh, should have that. Feeling of I'm charting my own path. Uh, there's not a, uh, there's not, there's not any one particular way to get anywhere. Uh, it is about doing what you believe in, uh, and then finding sponsors. How many sponsors have I had in my life? You know, um, that trip I told you about to Afghanistan. It wouldn't have happened yeah. if Betty Lou Taylor hadn't, you know, put me on a trip that I didn't belong on. Um, uh, that uh, ability to go and work on the hill at all wouldn't have come without um, without someone at NIH saying I should go. Uh, all those things required sponsors. And they didn't all look like me. Uh, they were men, they were women. Uh, so find those sponsors because they will make all the difference in your career. Ah, so well put and such a terrific note to end on. Thank you for making time uh, for me today and for our listeners and for what you do um, because it is it is so grand and ambitious a mission uh, that you are a part of that it's inspirational. And um, I'm so appreciative of, of your time and insights today. Oh, thank you, Jim. It's been fun. Remember, everyone, we are still accepting submissions on our staffer hotline, which you can reach by calling 888-416-2132. We have had a great response to the hotline, and we've already made a couple shows out of it. Keep those stories coming. And remember, they can be about anything that you found memorable, meaningful, funny about your experience as a staffer. They will be anonymous, so you can share literally anything. The length of the recording goes about four minutes. If you get cut off, just call back in and finish your story. Again, that number is 888-416-2132. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.